Okay, good morning. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we're we're going to come to a time now in our service. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We're going to talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible there with you, you got a Bible app, whatever it is, would you open it up to our passage here that we're going to look at in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, when you found that, hold it open. I'm going to read it for us, and then we'll dig into it together. Paul writes this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's God's word. Give me a moment. Let me just pray for us. I'll ask God's blessing on this time and his word, and then we'll dig in together. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, we just ask you now to come in a powerful way. Uh, uh, we believe that you inspired this word to be written, and I'm just asking that you would open our ears, open our hearts. God, every uh, heart and ear be open right now to hear this word and, and be changed and transformed by it. But not, not by my ability to speak, but by your power to change and transform, to heal and restore and, and correct and, and do all the work that you want to do. You say, you tell us when you send out this word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. Oh God, accomplish that purpose in each and every one who hears this today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, uh, tensions amongst the whole group are incredibly high right now. Uh, uh, you see factions and, and different alliances forming and then reforming all over the place. And, and the question, the, the one question that's just looming over everyone's head the entire time is, who is going to be the next person to get voted off the island? I'm referring, of course, to life inside my home right now this past week and, and perhaps in many of your homes as well as living together under these quarantine conditions and just kind of being up in everyone's space like way more than most of us are used to. It's, it's hard, right? It's, 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 it's a challenging time. I mean, we're all, still, we're all still members of our family, yes, okay, that, that remains unchanged whether we're talking about quarantine circumstances or not, but, but learning what the requirements are, like what's required in order for us to live together in peace, and then actually living that out as a family, that's an entirely different thing altogether. Now, now, maybe in your family, those requirements are, are clearly a clearly laid out list. Like maybe even have it up on the wall, like this is what we do. Or, or maybe they're a set of unspoken expectations that are just built into your family culture. But regardless of how they're communicated, because conflict, because differences of opinion are unavo an unavoidable reality in every family, every family needs some standard of expectation that ensures that the members of that family continue operating in a, in a peaceful way and in a unified way. 
So we are diving back into our series through the book of Ephesians this morning, turning the page, as it were, now to chapter 4, which most uh, scholars and, and theologians agree marks a major turning point in the book of Ephesians now, where, where Paul moves now from describing how it is that God brought about his plan in the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth together through his son Jesus to the implications of that plan for all who've been made members of this household of God by grace through faith. John Stott says it this way, now the apostle moves on from the new society to the new standards which are expected of it. He turns from exposition to exhortation, from what God has done to what we must now be and do in light of that. And what Paul lays out in the first 16 verses of chapter 4 in particular are at least four requirements, four expectations given by God as to what life in his reconciled and redeemed family is supposed to look like, what Paul describes as walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. So we're going to look at the, the first two requirements this week in verses 1 through 6, and then next week we'll look at the, the following, the last two requirements in verses 7 through 16. But what we're going to see in these first two requirements today as it relates to everything I said as we began this morning is this, God's expectation of our behavior as members of his family to ensure that, that we continue to operate in a peaceful and united and unified way with one another. And although, yeah, yeah, listen, Paul is writing to a church here about how they are to operate as the family of God. Listen, the principles that Paul outlines here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are absolutely still application to our biological families as well. Which means, hear me, you, you, you can take a lot of what Paul writes here to the church in Ephesus and implement it directly into your homes today, right now. Particularly, if like mine, they're beginning to feel a little bit like a real-time season of Survivor. But here's the thing. Be before we go on even one more step, I think it's really, really important to just pause here and remind you of something that I'm probably going to remind us of a, a lot in the coming weeks as we move into these last chapters of Ephesians, where, where Paul now focuses much more on implications, much more on how we are to live in light of everything that he unpacked in the first three chapters. Because, listen, it, it would be way, way too easy to hear all this language of, requirements and expectations and then wrongly conclude either that following the moral and ethical uh, imperatives of Ephesians 4 through 6 is what makes us a part of God's family to begin with or that it keeps us in God's family and, and, and both of those things are wrong. And so the reminder is simply this. What Paul writes in Ephesians 4 through 6 only applies if the unifying and reconciling work Paul described in Ephesians 1 through 3 is already true of you. Let me say that again. If, if what, what Paul writes in Ephesians 4 through 6, what we're going to look at for the remainder of this series in Ephesians, if what he writes here, that only applies... If the unifying and reconciling work that Paul described in Ephesians 1 through 3 is something that's already true for you, that reconciling work has already happened for you. It's just like, which is just to say, if you haven't already entered into a reconciled relationship with Jesus by grace through faith, trying to live according to everything that Paul describes here in these last chapters of Ephesians is not going to cause you to have a reconciled relationship with him. That's not how it works. 
But, but, and yet, but that's, that's exactly what so many people believe about Christianity, though, isn't it? That's what they think that, that this is. Like we, we just find out what the rules are, and we obey them, obey them well enough, and then God accepts us and, and takes us to heaven when we die. That, that's what so many people think Christianity is, but that, that, that is not the message of the Bible, nor is that even close to what Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians describing. No. The, the, the good news of the gospel that, that Paul described here in Ephesians is of a human race living in rebellion to God, dead in our trespasses and sins, but who have been made alive by God's grace in sending Jesus to give his life, to, to reconcile us back to God and to adopt us into his family so that now, hear me, obedience to everything Paul is going to describe in Ephesians 4 through 6 isn't at all about earning God's acceptance of us but simply a humble, grateful response to the living hope that because of Jesus, we already have it. That's the message of the gospel that Paul has outlined here as Clinton Arnold states, a changed life comes before the good behavior. Our new identity in Christ is what produces the good works. It's not the other way around. Okay, so with that in mind, let's go now to our passage and look what Paul has to show us about what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, showing us today here in part one, both the unifying virtues of God's redeemed family, as well as the unifying principle that holds us together as one, the unifying virtues and the unifying principle. So if you still got your Bible there, would you open it up? To that passage in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, follow along with me as Paul begins to unpack what a grateful response to the gospel hope he just spent three chapters describing looks like in the life of God's family. Okay, so let's look first of all at the unifying virtues. The unifying virtues, like what, what are the, the unifying virtues that are to be present in the life of a redeemed, reconciled person that demonstrate the value we place on God's reconciling of us by his blood and that help maintain the unity Jesus gave his life to create? What are they? Well, Paul lists some specific virtues there in verse 2. That's where we're going to end up, but I'm going to work our way into verse 2 from verse 1 and actually include what he says in verse 3 as well, which states the intended outcome of displaying these virtues in our lives. So, so look back with me at verse 1. Paul writes this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, so once again, Paul reminds his reader of, readers of his context, that is, under house arrest in Rome, as he did back in chapter 3. Why? Well, because it, it shows his demonstrated commitment to seeing God's plan to unite Jews and Gentiles into one church body realized uh, because well, that's the, the reason, like fighting for that cause is the thing that has landed him in prison. And that therefore, in verse 1, I therefore... That therefore in verse 1 is intended to include everything that Paul had already written about in chapters 1 through 3. So, so Paul's saying, on the basis of everything that I just said, I, Paul, the Lord's prisoner, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, what was that? What was the calling to which they had been called? Well, I'll say a lot more about that in a second, but, but generally speaking, because 
I guess in one, in one sense you could say the calling is everything he wrote in chapter 1 through 3. But generally speaking, it refers to the saving work of God in Christ that brought about peace between us and God as well as with one another. That, that's, what, that's what we've been called to. So, so on the basis of God's plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth, inaugurated and now beginning to be realized through the death and resurrection of Jesus, they are to walk in a manner that is worthy of that calling. Walking again, as we saw back in chapter 2, is simply a metaphor to describe our moral conduct and behavior. And fortunately for all of us, Paul doesn't just leave us to figure out what, what a worthy manner of walking in response to God's calling is supposed to look like in our lives. He, he, he describes it, telling us there in verse 2, by listing these virtues, four virtues of humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. A list that's certainly not intended to be exhaustive of all the ways that we could respond to the grace of God in saving us, but that I believe are essential for the task that Paul calls us to there in verse 3. Look, that we are to work to maintain the unity of the Spirit, which seems to be the worthy outcome Paul expects will result from demonstrating these virtues. So let's do this. Let's just look briefly at each one of those virtues and see how they might be effective in helping us to operate in a peaceful and a united way in God's family. So first of all, humility. Humility. Now what scholars point out here is that the Greek word Paul uses for humility it doesn't just mean humble actions, like acting in a humble way, but it means humility and lowliness of mind. The very virtue Christ himself demonstrated in his life, in which Paul calls us to have in that famous passage about the humility of Christ in Philippians 2, that have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. C.S. Lewis once wrote about it this way, saying, humility is not thinking more of others or less of ourselves, it's thinking of yourself less. Man, I think it's easy to see how, how Working to have such a lowliness of mind as, as Jesus had ourselves, this idea that, that thinks of serving others before it ever thinks about serving its own needs, would, would absolutely be an essential virtue in helping us to, to live at peace with one another in God's family. So that's humility. What, is, what about gentleness or, or meekness, as maybe some of your translations have? Gentleness, a quality that in Paul's day, no less in our own, that is so often wrongly characterized as weakness. Oh, he's gentle. We, we think of that as, as weakness. But as Stott rightly notes, gentleness is the gentleness of the strong whose strength is under control. Love that. And actually, let me, let's just say it. Okay? I'm probably not going to surprise you that, that all of these virtues, all of these virtues that, that Paul lists in verse 2 were demonstrated perfectly in the life of Jesus. Okay, They, they all were. For, for the incomparably great power of God under control and used to serve rather than to dominate it is exactly the quality we see demonstrated. For example, when Jesus, the Lord and the Master, the Creator of all things, gets down and, and washes his disciples' feet. And actually combined together, humility and gentleness are exa actually exactly how Jesus described himself in Matthew 11 in his well-known call to the weary and heavy laden to come unto him and find rest. I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart. Third and fourth, Paul lists patience 
and bearing with one another, two virtues that, that undoubtedly support and, and play off one another, and were also demonstrated perfectly in the life of Christ as he patiently trained and taught his disciples over three years, and in the end, as we read in Hebrews 12 too, endured the cross, bearing its shame for the joy that was set before him. And how fitting, actually, how fitting that Paul would qualify that virtue of bearing with one another with the word love. For as Paul states so powerfully in Colossians 3.14, And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So Paul says that to live in such a way with one another is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, and the result of which will be maintaining the unity of the Spirit among us in the bond of peace that Jesus purchased by his death. Which, I mean, which sounds great. Uh, it so, I mean, I think it certainly makes logical sense how living according to such virtues, yeah, would absolutely help us to accomplish those things, but... And I don't know if, if you're at all like me, you, you look at a list like that and you think, right, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, like, sure, how? How in the world am I ever going to live that out in reality on a consistent basis? Are you kidding me? Like, sure, I might be able to pull off one or two of those for an afternoon, maybe after like a glass of wine or two, but, but to, like, have you met the people in my church? Have you met my husband and my wife before? Have you spent even five minutes trying to homeschool my kids? No, that, this is not going to work out. And as a result, either from despair or selfishness or maybe some combination of both of those things, we dismiss Paul's virtues after only a few attempts of trying, if that even, as, as unattainable, as, as idealistic nonsense. Like, yeah, that's, that's a great idea, but not doable in real life. Or, just to use a modern-day example, we, we step away from the responsibilities of our royal calling in the same way that right now Harry and Meghan have stepped away from the British royal family because the responsibilities that go along with walking worthy of that calling don't, don't line up with our values. But let, let me remind you of a few things and actually remind myself of them at the same time before we, we, we just toss the whole list completely. Things, things I know, listen, I need to remind myself often of these things whenever I'm tempted to respond in the same way. It's like, oh, it's too hard, we can't do it. Let me remind you of, of two things. First of all, the calling to which you have been called and which I have been called to is a calling to a reconciled relationship with the God of the universe. A reconciliation that was accomplished, enti accomplished entirely for you by the death of God's innocent son, paying for the debt that your sins deserved. And listen, if, if, if what Paul writes at the beginning of chapter 2 about, about our being dead, actually, in our trespasses and sins before God's call, that means God's call on your life was not like Jesus' call to his disciples, hey, come follow me. It was more like Jesus' call to Lazarus in John 11 when he called him out of a tomb after being dead four days. That's what God's call on our life is like. And, and the result being of that call is that now you stand guiltless and perfect before a holy God with the fullness and of his inheritance and privileged status of Jesus now credited to your accounts. That's what that calling means. And so listen, like, I know that doesn't solve the ability question. It doesn't solve the how question for us. But man, 
I wonder if it doesn't answer the motivation question of why we should, no matter how hard it is, at least continue to try living according to these virtues in light of this call that we've been called to. Because of all that's being done, it's all being done for us. Second, I call you to remember that the call to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, it comes after Paul's therefore in verse 1 of chapter 4, which, which grounds his urging here to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in everything on the foundation of everything he just finished saying, not least of which what we looked at just two weeks ago in Paul's prayer in chapter 3, when he prays specifically that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, again we said more and more, may have strength. You may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, concluding his prayer with that incredible doxology, reminding you of God's ability to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. How? Well, according to his power that is at work within us. He's given us the strength to do it. And in light of all that, in light of those two things, I wonder, it makes me wonder if we haven't walked away from Paul's list a, a little too quickly. If perhaps the reason we still see so much conflict and discord in our churches and in our families isn't at all because Paul's list is unattainable or just idealistic nonsense, but because, first of all, we regularly forget the truly unattainable nature of a reconciled relationship with God and all the benefits that we enjoy that were accomplished for us by His grace alone, calling us from death to life. We forget that. Or because, once again, we base our ability to accomplish something, even something that we've prayed about, only on our own strength and not on his incomparably great power that is at work within us, a power that Paul says is what works to form more and more of these Christ-like virtues within us as we become more and more like him, being more and more deeply rooted and grounded in his love. I wonder if that's really the reason this seems so unattainable. So why not do this? Why not just take a moment right now, wherever it is you're watching this, wherever it is you're gathered, take a moment, and I want you to do this. Think about the greatest, most personally challenged, maybe even most personally wounding conflict that you have experienced, or maybe you're even experiencing right now with another brother and sister in Christ, either maybe in your church family, in your biological family, whatever it is, and ask God to reveal to you whether or not you've truly made use of either the motivation he's given us to continue to try living according to these virtues or the power to live according to them, both of which are freely made available to you if you're in Christ. Ask him to reveal that to you. Have I made use of the motivation and the power that you've given me to actually do this in light of that challenging, hard, hard relationship that, that's in conflict right now? And if the answer is yes, if you could say, yes, I have, then as Paul writes elsewhere in Romans 12, 18, you can rest knowing that you've done as much as possible, as far as it depends on you, to live at peace with all men. And praise God for that. But if not, if, if the answer is, no, I, I know I haven't, not, not really. 
then first of all, yeah, receive the grace of God to forgive you for, for not maintaining the unity of the spirit that's worthy of your calling. Yes. But then ask him for the strength to try again. Ask him for the strength, the strength to try again, not according to your own power, but according to his. Because your power, we've already demonstrated, our power is insufficient to do this. But his is more than sufficient enough, and it's at work within you. And then, listen, whatever he reveals to you, be obedient to it. Be obedient to what he shows you to do. Walk into it no matter how hard it is. Trust him. Listen, that whatever God calls us to, he also enables us to carry out. In his book, The Silver Chair, from the Chronicles of Narnia series, C.S. Lewis writes about a young girl named Jill Poole who comes to be separated from her friends out in the woods one hot afternoon, and, and now she's searching around for them, and now desperately hot and thirsty, she comes upon a stream. The only problem is, is that Aslan, a powerful lion who actually represents, he's meant to represent the Christ figure, he's the central figure in all the stories, he's lying down beside the stream between her and the water. And Lewis writes this of their interaction. If you're thirsty, come and drink. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will, will you promise not to, uh, to, to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step closer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. No, I, I daren't come drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. So we turn now from looking at the unifying virtues that we are to demonstrate in the household of God to the unifying principle. The unifying principle, the, the, the one foundation that undergirds, that supports and holds up everything Paul just wrote about, the unifying virtues that are to be present in God's family. And, and that single unifying principle that Paul offers in verses 4 through 6, just to summarize and really borrow a phrase from Lewis, is this. There is no other stream. That's, that's the unifying principle. There is no other stream. Look, look again at what Paul writes in verses 4 through 6. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, you probably notice there's something of a theme there. Uh, Paul's repeated use seven times, actually, of that word one. 
Just look at what he says there. There is one body, he writes, referring to what Paul wrote back in chapter 1, verse 23, as well as verse 2, 16, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, about the church, about this, this new society built together of Jews and Gentiles into one family through the death of Christ. There is one spirit, he says, referring to the third person of the Trinity uh, that, that Paul mentions in both of his prayers, who, who points us, the one who points us again and again and again to the completed work of Christ, the, the unifying work of Christ on our behalf, which is our one hope, both in this life as well as in the life to come. That, that, that hope of the unifying work applied to us, saving us, restoring us, reconciling us, that is our one hope. One Lord, he says, referring to Jesus himself, who is the sole provider of that living hope. One faith, referring not as much to our active belief in Jesus as much as to the core convictions of the Christian faith that point to Jesus as being who he truly said he was, as God's promised rescuer, as, as the Messiah. One baptism, not, not necessarily meaning our water baptism by which we confess our faith, but the baptism of, of the Holy Spirit that our water baptism represents, this, this act that takes place in our salvation. We are baptized with the Holy Spirit, washed, cleansed, filled, restored, renewed by that baptism. As Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says this, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And finally, one God and Father of all, who is over all things, in all things, and working through all things. There is no other stream. There is one stream, one hope. One, one stream, as the psalmist says, uh, that, that, that gives life to the city of God, that brings joy to the city of God. I love that picture. One stream to drink from, one stream that unites us all. And maybe you read that and you think, well, yeah, like, obviously there's only one of those things. Why, why would Paul even bother to go to all the trouble to mention all seven of them? Well, I think one of the biggest reasons Paul does that is because he simply he knows the sinful, wandering temptation that comes to every single one of our hearts, even those who've already been made a part of the household of God, to look for other streams. He knows that that's the temptation of all of our hearts to see, maybe even experience the reality of our living hope in Jesus and yet still try to find other paths in order to find what can only be truly found in Him. He knows that's the, the, the temptation of all of our hearts. And so Paul's unifying principle that he wants to clearly lay down in front of us with this repeated use of one, 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 immediately following his urging to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, it's just that, to remind us, listen, there is one stream, there is no other stream, says Paul. Everything I just spent the last three chapters describing to you about the work of God in Christ to reconcile and unite everything, including you, united all back to himself, that is the one true hope, the only hope that you truly have in this life that belongs to your call. The hope that he prayed back in chapter 1, the Spirit would enlighten our eyes to see and know and believe and trust more and more. There is only one place we can truly go to for that hope. One place that unites us all as one family. That secures our hope in this life as well as for the future. We may look to all kinds of other things 
in this life to try to find hope. We can look to money and power and relationships and position, all these other things. But, but to disconnect from that one source of true hope, because, of course, you must release your hold on the one source in order to pursue and, and take hold of another source, is to disconnect from, it disconnects us from the one thing that unites us all. So Paul says to his readers then, as well as to you and I today, listen, there is only one stream that can truly satisfy, that can truly join us together, that, that, and that can continue to satisfy the thirst of your soul for all time. There's only one place to go, one place to drink. And, and as we all do that, as we all drink from that one stream, Paul says, we are united as one family. And we remain, continue to be united as one family, both to God as well as to one another for all time. You know, here's the thing. None, none, of, this, none of this work is easy. You know that? If you've tried for more than five minutes, you do. None, none of this maintaining of the unity of spirit, walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called is easy or straightforward or, or isn't just actually incredibly messy either in our spiritual family or in our biological families. Listen, even with the empowering work of the Spirit within us, it's still going to be challenging. It's still going to be hard. But, but as you may have already guessed, that's the very reason Paul listed those virtues back in two by which we can maintain the unity amongst us to begin with. Because he knows the natural inclination of our hearts is not to do those things. And that's going to Spread us apart. That's going to make us not united. Like that, the natural inclination of our hearts is not to be humble. It's not to be gentle. It's not to be patient. Not to bear with one another's stupidity and love. That's not what we're naturally inclined to do. And so that's why he says, this, listen, strive to do these things. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit by doing these things. Because it's not easy in the family of God to, to continue to live this out. I love what pastor and author Scott Sauls once tweeted about this very reality, stating this. Sometimes, he says, it takes having differences, not understanding one another, and even being a little bit irritated and bored with one another to remind us that the church is a family and not a club. Which means, I think, whether we're talking about unity within the church or unity within our families. Listen, the point in the end is not that we never have conflict, okay? Not that we never disagree with one another. Not that we never actually want to vote one of the family members off the island. No, but how we demonstrate the reality of our living hope found in Jesus alone to a watching world in, a way that, in the way we respond to one another whenever that conflict does happen. That's the point. How do we work to respond to one another when that conflict, when that discord, when that difficulty does happen? Because it will. How do we respond? As Jesus himself said in John 13, 35, I'll close with this. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. What? Uh, uh, that we, we all go to church? We all pray? We all talk about Jesus all the time? We, we, we listen to Praise 106.5? What? No, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's our love for one another. It's, it's our striving to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another and bearing with one another in love, which unites all those things together. That's how we show that we truly are a part of this united family of God to the watching world all around us. 
Oh, Spirit of God, may, may the Spirit of God empower and enable us to live this out. Not just for an afternoon, not just for a few days, but for all of our days on this earth. Both for our good and for the building up of his kingdom. More and more on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.